eBay Motors is here for the ride. Elbow grease and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet with faster speeds rolling out every day and internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. So while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next generation 10G network only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So I know there's probably several of you out there who are listening who homeschool their kids, keep your kids out from public or private schools, but you follow a curriculum at home uh, that you bought online or maybe you developed yourself. Well, there's another type of at-home schooling that has no cur- curriculum. It's called unschooling. I'm completely fascinated by this concept. Basically, uh, you, you keep your kids home and you put them, sell, put them in situations where they have to learn math in order to complete the task, and surprisingly, they learn math. Well, my guest today, he's homeschooled or unschooled his two boys. His name's Ben Hewitt. He's a writer, lives in northern Vermont. And today on the show, we're going to discuss his experience unschooling his two boys and letting them run wild in the wilderness of Vermont and the things they've learned because of that. But we also talk about uh, Ben's decision when him and his wife decided to build a homestead in Vermont, a house they built together from scratch on their own how they did that, why they did that, uh, why they decided to very, live a very simple lifestyle. And then we'll get into the book that Ben wrote about his uh, unschooling his two boys called Homegrown. Uh, really fascinating discussion. Uh, made, after, I, after I did the interview, it made me want to run off to Vermont, sell everything and unschool my, my two kids and let them run wild in Vermont. Uh, but I'm still here in Tulsa. Uh, so without further ado, we've got Ben Hewitt and we're going to talk about unschooling and Homegrown. Ben Hewitt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, I don't know how I came across you. I think I read an article that you may have you know, published and I saw it online. Um, but I had to have you on because you live in Vermont and you have a, you live like the, the quintessential like Vermont life. I think what like every American imagines like that, that's the... It's like a, it's a postcard. Like, I mean, we, that's, you live on a farm a with your family. With, a postcard with black flies. Right, right. postcard with black flies. Maybe we could talk about some of, uncovered, you know, take off the cover of the romanticism of, of rural living a bit. Um, but you, you published this book and it was really great. It's called Homegrown, Adventures in Parenting Off the Beaten Path, Unschooling and Reconnecting with the Natural World. And it's about the, uh, the conscious decision you and your wife have made to uh, not put your sons uh, in public schooling, you don't even homeschool him, and we're going to talk a little bit about that in a in a bit because uh, it's interesting. But before, let's talk about um, how you got to where you are today. You um, started off, you and your wife, uh, they, you live on a homestead in a in a um, home you built yourself. 
how did and you you live you you farm and you write uh, to supplement your income, but you you primarily farm. How did you make that decision? I mean, was that something when you were 13 years old, uh, you decided, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. Like, I'm going to go live on a farm. I'm going to no, grow my own food. Yeah. When I was 13, I think I was going to be um, a speed metal guitarist. Probably. <laughs> um, so it definitely, and, uh, and, and, and I would say there never was sort of that inflection point where I was just like, this is what I'm going to do with my life. Um, so the growth or or the the evolution i guess of of our homestead and the way we inhabit it um has been sort of a, it's been much more uh, of a process over a long period of time um i think the only thing the only aspect of what i do and how i fill my days now that that really did have perhaps a little more foresight to it was that i did realize at some point um, quite some time ago now that I wanted to write for, um, and hopefully for a living. So there, that, there was definitely a point where uh, there was a light bulb moment with, with my writing for sure, where I was like, wow, I could actually like make a living writing. Um, and as anyone who has, you know, you know frustratingly in some cases written, uh, for free or tried to find the time to write, um, uh, under any circumstances, you know, that's, that's uh, the realization of that has been, has been a real blessing and something that I'm, I'm, I'm really try to remain grateful for. <laughs> um, yeah, I, like most people, I'm, I'm, uh, susceptible to becoming rather jaded, um, with my circumstances, but I try to really be grateful about that. And so that was something I did. I did really think a lot about and plan definitely not as early as 13, but, but a little bit later in my life. And so the, were a lot of the decisions you made afterwards about basically you've just, you know, at a very early age, I mean, when you were 16, you dropped out of public school, dropped out of high school. Um, I did. And I mean, was that a part of you? Was there like an underlying ethos? You just, you didn't want to go that conventional path. I mean, what did you find in the conventional path that didn't appeal to you? Was it like the, the constraints, the lack of freedom? What was going on there? Yeah, I, I think I felt very, um, I mean, I was very bored uh, as a student. And I think a lot of, uh, probably most of your listeners are, are out of their high school years, but I'm sure a lot of them can can relate to that. Um, and so I felt, I felt very, very bored. It felt tedious to me. I felt, I remember really strongly this feeling of um, a lack of respect for my time as a, as an individual, and uh, and it just wasn't a great fit for me. I, I'm I'm really keen to point out that uh, you know I was not. Um, it's not like I dropped out of school so I could pursue like a self-designed study in you know uh, nuclear thermodynamics or something like that. I mean, I was I was I was not a great student, and I was a little bit of a hoodlum, I guess, at that point in my life, not in the sense of like actually doing harm to others, but I was definitely, you know, partying too much and just sort of being a general, uh, you know, teenage ne'er-do-well, I guess, in a lot of ways. Um, which, you know, in and of itself, I think, was a reflection of that boredom that I was feeling and that, and that sort of level of disrespect and, and trying to find my own way in the world, particularly when it was really obvious that, I didn't really fit very well within the prescribed circumstances of the public education system. So, um, I was super fortunate that I had a really supportive parents. Like that was, that was a real saving grace for me. Um, and they were, they were super supportive. They, um, really facilitated my leaving school when it became really obvious that it wasn't the right thing for me. Um, and they offered, you know, unconditional love and support, even though I was, you know, taking a path that I'm, I'm sure was, was terrifying to them at the time. Um, 
but you know, I really look back at that as as that that decision as a, a really a, it was a blessing in disguise in a lot of ways. I think um, in a lot of ways, my the life that I've created now um, may not have happened um, or would have been more difficult to make happen. I think if I had gone a more conventional route, uh, I came from a family of a lot of uh, that. that had a lot of higher education in its background. My, both of my parents went to school. My dad has a master's. Um, ironically enough, when I left high school, my dad worked for the Vermont Department of Education, believe it or not. <laughs> um, so I think there was, there was this presumption that I would probably be, you know, follow that path. Um, and um, because we were a family of modest means, it would have meant accruing a not insignificant amount of debt. And so sometimes I wonder, and it, you know, of course, there's no way to know. I mean, it's like... Um, um, I can't, I can't back up and do it all over again, a different version of it. But I do wonder that if I had gone on to school, uh, and by school, I mean, college, university, um, if I would have just had the financial, um, independence, since I would have had to assume a lot of, um, a lot of loans, uh, to pursue writing as a career path. I mean, who knows, you know, it, yeah. it, it also occurs to me that it's just as likely that I would have gone on to school and I would have loved it and I would have ended up, uh, ended up in some amazing job that would have been dependent on that education. So I can't, you know, I'm not here to say that I, I know for certain, but, um, whatever the case may be, I, I have no regrets about making that choice. And I think, um, that for me, it was at the time, um, the right choice to make. And, and I still feel that way. And so what did you do, uh, after you, you dropped out? I mean, did you, so it yeah, it sounds like you didn't set, set yourself some sort of like curriculum, but I'm sure no. you, there was something <laughs> you learned, mildly, like there yeah. was, the, you went through like the school of heart, like you learned, you probably learned something during this period where immediately after yeah. you dropped out. I, right. So that's a great, that's a great way to phrase it. I mean, I think, I think, um, I learned what I didn't want to do, which was to continue sort of down that path of, you know, smoking too much pot and drinking too much beer and just not really, um, you know, doing much productive with my life. I had a lot of, I was sort of hanging out with a crowd that did a lot of that. And, um, that didn't last that long for me actually. Um, and then, um, I also was at the time, uh, I picked up some jobs on construction crews and, you know, interestingly enough, you know, here's another sort of aspect of this atypical education that I had. And, and when I say education, I, I mean, I, I really feel strongly that my education, um, did not end when I left school and in many ways only sort of just began when I left school. Um, but, um, you know, I was, I was, I had the luxury, I guess, during that period of my life to learn a lot of skills, uh, or the, at least the basis for a lot of skills that I've been able to rely on and do rely on to this day. And so, um, you know, when people sort of, uh, wonder, you know, how we do the things, some of the things we do, um, nowadays, which is, you know, uh, build our own house, um, and, and utilize a lot of these skills. I mean, I, I feel really blessed to have had that opportunity to develop some of those. So a lot of those skills, I think actually, um, liberated me later in life. Right. But the thing was, you, you probably didn't know at the time that this was going to come in handy later on, right? No, it was not a plan. Right. Yeah. Right, right, right. I was not, I, I absolutely not. I mean, I think I, I, I had a friend at the time, one of my best friends was um, himself having a rather atypical teenage um, upbringing, um, and he was actually homeschooled, um, and he was building his own place at the age of 17 on his parents' land, um, and that actually had a real influence on me. So um, I think watching 
that the progress of that place and, and seeing that, you know, this was something that was like possible for a young person to do. Um, you know, I, I, I'm sure that that got tucked away somewhere, perhaps unconsciously, you know, but I was, I was, I, but, but yeah, I wasn't thinking to myself, okay, I'm going to go learn the trade so that, you know, it, you know, 15 or 20 or 30 years from now, um, I can build my own house. That wasn't, that wasn't the thought process. Right. And I love that because, I mean, I get, I get a lot of emails and letters from young men, right? They're like 18, 20s. And like, there's a lot of anxiety. They feel like they have to have a plan. They have to have everything planned out till like they're 50, right? Or till they retire. And uh, they, you know, they tell me like, well, here's the options I could do. And I just tell them like, just do something, right? You never, you're going to pick up stuff along the way. You don't know at the time is going to be useful later on, but like, just get started with life and move in some direction. And then new directions will open up and you can follow that because you've acquired skills along the way that are useful for that new direction. Yes. So, I mean, one of the things I've noticed in my life now, we're, now we're sort of, I'm going to back up and take sort of more like the 30,000 foot view. Yeah. But, um, I really believe strongly that if you structure your life in such a way that you can leave yourself open to serendipity, um, you will in the long run be, be better off and, and things will open up for you and happen for you that you might never have imagined. So for me, you know, a lot of the things that have been uh, most meaningful and impactful in my life are things that you could, you know, I could never have planned for. Um, and so I think your advice actually is, is really, really sound. Um, yeah, I think culturally we place way too much emphasis on creating this sort of roadmap for our lives. Um, and, um, in a way that roadmap becomes, and in some ways I think it becomes its own prison. Yeah, I agree. Cause it, you, you get like uh goal, goal focus, right? It's like only, it's only fo- or goal blindness, I guess is what you call it. Goal blind, right. Yeah, no, that's a great term. Yeah. Actually comes from, uh, like the military air force pilots or fighter pilots aren't supposed to like focus on one target because it closes their perception to other possible threats. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So, uh, so you dropped out of high school, you did construction work, you did all sorts of different types of odd jobs over a few years. Then you met your, your future wife or now wife, Correct. uh, you yep. guys were uh, dating, uh, boyfriend, girlfriend. Uh, and then you, you, the two of you decide to buy 40 acres in Northern Vermont, um, and, and build a homestead. And I think when I, a lot of people hear that, they think, oh boy, that must be really nice. It's like the, the, the quintessential Courier and Ives dream. I would do that if I had the money. Sure. Um, but you and your wife didn't have much money. So can you talk yeah. about the process of how you made this happen for you, for you too? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and I, you know, I think it is important to acknowledge that it is true that we didn't have a lot of money and we, we didn't come from what most of us would consider money in this day and age. We are both from, you know, middle-class families. Um, so that, you know, it was us sort of making our way in the world, but of course we were benefiting from all sorts of other sort of entrenched privileges. So I think that's, that there is, you know, we, that is important to acknowledge sure. that. Um, but um, yeah, at the same time, you know, we definitely, um, it was, it was a struggle. Uh, I was at the time, you know, uh, flipping between construction and, um, working in a bike and ski shop. I was a really avid backcountry skier and cyclist. Um, and so that was kind of my, my, uh, off season job if there, if, if I did, or whenever it got, things got slow in the construction and the trades. And she was um, actually working on a vegetable farm of all things. So I think between the two of us, we made like twenty bucks an hour. You know, it was it was these were not this is not a king's ransom at all. 
Um, and so the way we did it basically was inhabit a series of um, pretty deplorable little hovels um, that we were able to rent either for, you know, I think the most, there was a period there of, of like two or three years when we were pretty intensely saving. Um, and I think during that entire period, we never paid more than like $150 a month for rent. Um, and then during one long period in the sort of final push to saving money, um, we actually lived in a tent on our friend's land um, into December in Vermont. And, and I do, I remember, you know, very, very clearly uh, living in this tent or sleeping in this tent. And we had this stick that we had propped up next to this mattress. And the stick was so that we could push the snow off the roof of the tent without getting out. So the tent didn't collapse <laughs> on us, you know? Um, so there was this long period of, of living in what most people these days would consider really substandard conditions. Um, and we were able, uh, I don't know, do you want the whole, like, people ask this question a lot. And I, and I think it's a great question because, um, and I'm happy to talk about the finances because because I think too often this stuff gets glossed over. Um, and right. Don't want to talk about money and all of this stuff. And and I'm I'm totally fine. No, let's go. I'll, I mean, I'll give mean, you the whole like financial. Yeah. Rundown, I mean, like, all, I mean, you also mentioned like you like you guys bathed in a river, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. We still do that quite a bit. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, the other benefit of all this, you know, is like it set our standards and expectations to a point where that later in our lives, it's been, it's been really easy to sort of satisfy our material needs, if that makes any sense. Right. Right. So it's always easier, you know, it's, it's easier if, if you, if your standard living and your material expectations are set um, high, it's, it's difficult to walk those back down, if you know what I'm saying. Right. So um, it's loss it was, aversion. Think, right? Yeah. Well, thank you. That's the term I was looking for. Um, so um, anyway, we managed to save we save fifteen thousand um, dollars on this sort of you know uh, Olympic level frugality uh, measures, um, and with that we were able to get a loan from the bank um, for another fifteen thousand, uh, and we bought a piece of land that cost thirty thousand bucks. The banks, at least around here, they'll the, if you want to buy bare land, you've got to have fifty um, percent. So our budget was was thirty thousand bucks, and we actually found a piece of land that we really liked. After a year of, of relatively fruitless searching, we found the piece of land that we bought uh, for thirty thousand dollars. So once we once we bought that, um, we borrowed ten thousand dollars from a friend uh, who had some resources. And we built what I call sort of the prototypical hippie shack, um, which was just like a two-room cabin, you know, up on piers, um, and really, really simple little wood stove. Uh, and we built that, and we lived there until we had paid off. And this is sort of this for me is sort of a key point. Um, we're really debt averse, um, and sometimes I, I joke that the, you know the really the, the the real reason we live this way is essentially because uh, I'm lazy, which is to say I don't really ever. I, I really hope to never be in a spot in my life where I have to take a job I don't want or like simply because I'm trying to service debt. Um, so a lot of my, you know, life choices um, are really sort of structured around the idea that not having debt um, affords me a level of autonomy that a more indebted lifestyle does not. Um, so we all the way along, even though we did take debt from time to time, we were really, really careful to pay it down before we took on more debt. Or And we were also really certain that it never became something that we couldn't handle pretty easily. Um, so anyway, we built this little cabin. We paid back our friend. We paid back the bank. And then we did actually take out another loan from the bank, a construction loan. And we added on and built um, 
what most people consider a more appropriate uh, uh, sized and and um, a more commodious uh, house in 21st century America. So that was kind of the progression. Um, we've actually since sold that. Actually, just last year we sold that property, um, and we we had so much fun spending 20 years creating our perfect homestead that we decided we wanted to do it again. So um, I'm speaking to you right now from um, the inside of a house that's about 90% finished that we've been building over the last six months or so. Wow, that's great. And I imagine was the first go around was it like pretty rough? Like I know mean, you had you had construction experience, but uh, building an entire house, I mean, that just seems like daunting. I'm sure there yeah, was a lot of. Have, I mean, I, I, I should point out that we've had we have help have had help along the way. So it wasn't like we did, you know, a hundred percent of the work, right. but we were definitely the primary, the primary labor force. Um, well, so it's a good example of communitarianism, right? Agrarian yeah, exactly, exactly. And we're really fortunate to have a lot of friends um, in the trades, uh, you know, have skills that we can rely on when we get when we sort of you know run into a, 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 the the. Um, upper end of our own experience and knowledge and skill level, um, which, which happens more frequently than I really care to admit on your show. But, um, uh, yeah, so, so, it, you know, the second go around, um, uh, you know, we did have a lot more experience building this place. We also had a much better sense of what we wanted. Um, and having lived in a place for 20 years, having seen our sort of lives evolve, um, and you know, we had, it was sort of like, felt like this opportunity to do this amazing thing and like, wow, we can, we could do this it, uh, over again and make all these little tweaks that we've always talked about making. So, um, you know, here we are and, um, it's, yeah, it's been, it's been actually just an amazing process. Really, really. I've just had a ton of fun. That's um, awesome. I think all, all of us have actually. Yeah. So. Well, I'm curious. I mean, like, what was it? that was driving you during those, like you know, when you were, you know, using the stick to push snow off the tent and right. there was, you know, you had a battle, you know, big black flies, uh, yeah. little, what was it that yeah. was like, okay, this I'm, we're doing it for this reason. What was the underlying ethos behind this madness? Oh, that's such a great question. I, because I haven't, I, I don't, I've never really sat down and like thought about it and and I don't know that there was an underlying ethos um or or a singular underlying ethos um you know I think we both I know we both felt really compelled to inhabit a piece of land where we could do a lot of the things we do now which is you know we we raise animals we have cows we have pigs we have chickens um we do a lot of foraging uh, we have gardens, um, we have an orchard. I mean, these are all things that were really important to us, even going back as far as, you know, our early twenties when we first met. So there was definitely this sort of shared vision we had. It was a little hazy. We didn't know exactly what it was going to look like, but, um, you know, from not long after my then girlfriend, now wife, Penny and I met, there was this sort of shared vision that we were going to have this small farmstead, homestead, farm, whatever you want to call it. So that, that was definitely a motivating factor. There was no sort of, at that point anyway, sort of more like, you know, larger, larger picture philosophical underpinnings. Um, No Thoreau-esque type. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. right. That wasn't what it was about. It was like, this is what we want to do. And I would say that's, that's somewhat true even to this day. I, I don't, you know, I don't wake up in the morning, you know, thinking about, um, 
you know, how I'm going to do my little part to change the world, although I think it's important that we all reflect on that in some point in our lives. But mostly I wake up in the morning, you know, genuinely pretty excited about the opportunity to do the things that we are able to do around here every day. So, you know, I actually enjoy getting up in the morning and, and having chores to do. It, it, uh, it gives me a feeling of purpose, and I like, you know, I, I really um, um, uh grateful for the relationships with our animals and with the land. Um, I like the physical labor that's involved in this life. Um, I think we really have come to a place where we shortchange uh, the, the benefits and the enjoyment that comes of manual labor in this culture. Um, and, and so a lot of it is, is, you know, a little bit of just sort of like, this is what our version of a fulfilling life is. And, and I totally understand that it's not everyone's version. I get that hundred percent, but for us, this is, you know, this is what feels meaningful to, um, to have these, have this work to do on a day in day out basis. It seems like also like a, a sense of place is really important to you and your wife. That's what I, what I got from the book. Like you wanted to be really connected to a, a physical place and all that's involved with that. It's totally true. Although I, it feels weird saying that now, having just sort of made this move. Right. Um, we didn't move. We didn't, probably didn't move that far. <laughs> right. No, we didn't. We didn't. And, uh, but, but you're, you're totally right. And, and, um, a sense of place and having that, you know, feeling embedded and, and actually where we moved to is essentially in, uh, on the periphery of the same community. So community wise, it's really actually hardly different at all. Um, but being embedded in a community, having an awareness of place and region, um, is really, really important to us. Um, and, and also having our, you know, the ways that your lives become shaped, um, by your, by community and region. I mean, Really, we inhabit a very transient um, society yeah. at this point, and as, as any uh, first world society is in the 21st century. And there's some amazing benefits that go along with that. But um, there is, I think, a, a, a wider spread sort of sense of placelessness that comes of that. Um, and I think a lot of people feel that and, and uh, feel that uh, a loss of of having that connection, uh, whether it's to a particular piece of land or to a community, or even just to a region, um, and that is one thing that is really really important to us. And um, and really, um, you know, this life is all about trade offs. You know, it's like I, I think um, it is really easy to sort of look at it. Uh, from the outside looking in, and it seems really idyllic. Um, and there are aspects of it, of course, that are really idyllic. Um, but there are trade-offs. I mean, we don't really get to travel. We don't have that luxury, um, in part from finances, um, in part because we have animals that depend on our care. Um, in part, you know, in the winter, we rely only on wood for heating. So there's there's a lot of aspects that make, you know, that, that really do ensure that we don't really – um, have those opportunities. We, we, we can't just sort of, you know, close the door behind us, um, and be gone. So, um, but for us, you know, and, and, and there are times absolutely when we wish we, we could do that more readily. Uh, but the opportunity to sort of really embed ourselves here is more important to us than, than that flexibility. So you can't have it all. You can't have it all. Yeah. Right. right. But who can? Who can? No one. I, I don't know. I guess Donald Trump. I mean, maybe Donald talent. Trump can have so, it. All. <laughs> it's right. Maybe Donald will buy a, a piece of property next to you. Yeah, I don't even <laughs> want to go there. All right. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. 
Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. 
That's meetfabric.com slash manliness, M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Let's talk about this. So you, you, you and your wife established your little homestead, and then uh, you'll have your first son um, right. in the home. That, that was pretty cool. Like you actually... Like your son, you dis- yeah, that's right, right on our living room floor. Right, yeah, both, are, both our boys were. Yeah. Right, and you you describe how you were able to point in the specific spots, like where they were born. Yeah, yeah, it's totally true, and that's yeah. that's really cool. Um, but uh, so there's, there came, a, I'm sure they reached an age where you were all like any parent, you start thinking about their schooling, right? Mm-hmm. I remember when my wife and I had started having these conversations probably two years ago. Like my son was yep. getting to be about three. It's like, hey, what are we gonna do about school? You all decided instead of going uh, through public schools and not even traditional homeschooling, you, you decided to keep them home and do what's called unschooling. I know you don't like that word. Um, you talk about that in the book, but uh, can you describe what unschooling is and how it's different from traditional homeschooling? Yeah, I mean, the, so the, the simplest way um, to put it, maybe, which still doesn't really explain anything, but to help to understand that the, that there are, there is a difference there, um, which is that all unschooling is homeschooling, but not all homeschooling is unschooling. Um, so a lot of, a lot of homeschool, in fact, the majority of, of families that choose to homeschool generally follow, um, a, a pretty set standardized curriculum. Um, and that is not what we do. Um, and so the other way I like to talk about it and uh, that's, that's relatively concise because I, I think, you know, one of the things about our style of education and the way our kids learn is that it is, it, it is really hard to sort of talk about in, in really bite-sized pieces. It becomes, um, it's, it's a really sort of nuanced big picture thing. Right. But, um, the other, the other, the other term I've come to really like, like that I, that I think begins to sort of express what, um, some of our philosophy is that, um, while the public education system and standardized curriculum based education, um, tries to make learning happen, our style is to try to make room for learning to happen. Um, uh, and so by that, what I mean is that like, you know, we try to ensure, um, and we do, I think, um, ensure that our kids have, uh, a lot of, uh, flexibility, um, and freedom in their day in day out schedules so that they are able to follow those pursuits that are of most interest to them. Um, so yeah, and I, it's, it is true that I don't really love the term unschooling. It's kind of the one that's, that's, um, caught on in, in the national consciousness to the extent that any of them have. Um, and I guess the, you know, the problem I see with it is that it sort of describes what we don't do. It doesn't really describe what we do do. Um, and, um, and also, you know, it's like, why do my kids need to be unschooled? They've never been to school. If anyone needs to be unschooled, it's, it's me, you know, it's my (laughs) wife, right? We are the ones who, who sort of, you know, myself less than her because I, I, le- I left the public education system at a pretty young age, but we're the ones who went, went to school and had that, you know, sort of in some case, in some ways suffered for that experience and, and really need to sort of try to undo it. Um, I think in some, in some regards. So is that, that must be hard though, cause you, you two had this experience of what education's like. So is there that temptation or that tendency to be like, sit down with your sons and like make every moment a learning moment, right? Like son, you know, you're making your, this bow right. here. 
Um, you know, this, yeah, no, I say, I mean, <laughs> we don't do a lot of that. Um, I, I, I mean, it, it happens for sure. I mean, look, you know, this, this summer, we spent the summer building a barn in the house with them and there's, there's almost no way for that not to be a learning moment, whether you're actually, you know, sitting down and, and explaining, you, you know, the particulars of roof pitches and how you arrive at a particular roof angle or whatever the case is, um, it just it's it's much more sort of happening by osmosis than than really sitting down. We did, you know I don't I should say that we there is a certain amount of and this this has been particularly true we found with math which is one of those things that we at least um, have had a hard time incorporating without actually sitting down. So we do spend a little bit of time sitting down um, so that they at least have the benefit of learning um, some some basic and even mid-level mathematics uh, because it's just really, I think, essential to their ability to to thrive in the world that they have those skills. Um, and I, I know having talked to other parents who are on a similar educational trajectory, you know, so much of this has to do with the particular child and their temperament um, and, and their proclivities. And some kids, you know, they just love math, and you don't—that's that's not necessary. We have found that it is necessary for us. Um, and that's actually another point that I would, you know, I'd like to make when I talk about this is that, you know, the public education system and a standardized curriculum in general um, is basically one thing to a million different families. Um, what we're, what this is, is a million different things to a million different families. You know, it can be whatever you want it to be. Um, and that's another reason I think it's so hard to really define in any kind of concise way. Um, it just means different things to different people. Yeah. And I think a lot of people who are listening to this or hear that, you know, they hear this concept of unschooling. Uh, they think, well, how how do, how do you how do your kids learn to read or like how do they learn to write? But it sounds like yeah. they they've done that, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think a lot of that sort of um, lack uh, or a lot of the um, we have lost culturally. My belief, um, we have lost culturally uh, a lot of confidence in a child's ability. Our children's ability to learn without formalized instruction. So, I, in my experience, um, and 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 of course there are going to be exceptions because there are children who struggle with very specific learning challenges. Um, but the major- majority of children, you're not going to be, if you if you put them in a home where there are books, uh, and you give them access to books and you read to them, you're not going to be able to stop them from learning how to read. Um, and so, no, yeah, you're, you're exactly right. Neither one of our children was, was formally taught to read. Excuse me. They, they simply learned because we, we exposed them to books um, almost constantly. This actually brings me to another point <laughs> and that I want to make sure to make before we're through with this conversation, which is that I think it would be very possible to do um, some version of this, of what we're doing very, very poorly. Right, so a lot of, uh, of this style of learning, and, and, and I think, is really, really dependent on um, a healthy, supportive uh, environment where the parents are really engaged in facilitating their children's learning. So I think when a lot of people hear unschooling, they think, oh, it must be this like totally hands-off thing. Your kids just do, you know, whatever they want all the time. Um, they, you know, they probably are just sitting around doing nothing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that may be true in some families who unschool or whatever you want to call it. Um, but I can assure you that in our family, 
um, you know, the level of facilitation that we do in order, you know, to sort of help them find uh, mentors um, and other people who can, who can further their learning and their skills, um, it would be a heck of a lot easier to just send our kids to school, a lot easier. So we are, you know, uh, this, is, this is our choice, and we have actually structured, in many ways, structured our life around making sure that we are able to create these opportunities and facilitate these opportunities for our children. So, you know, you, you mentioned earlier about trade-offs, right, with the, the yeah. lifestyle. So, I mean, I imagine there's, there's trade-offs with this. I mean, what is it, let's talk about, we, let's not talk about the negative trade-offs. Like, what, what is something that your kids are learning that they wouldn't be able to learn if they were in public schools? Well, oh boy, yeah. So they, they have a whole range, I mean, I don't know. So I think it's hard to say, you know, could they, it, would it be impossible for them to learn some of these skills, um, outside of the public school system? No, it wouldn't be impossible. But, of course, the reality is that public school, uh, you know, if, if, you're, if your child's in school, um, they're in school for somewhere around 40 hours a week, uh, maybe more, maybe a little less, depending on their commute and, and whatnot. Um, then, of course, there's homework. And then, of course, there's the fact that, you know, the average uh, teen in this day and age is in front of a screen more than 50 hours a week. Um, so you end up with a situation where there simply isn't any time to learn anything but what that curriculum lays out for you. So, you know, um, if you're talking about sort of like hard, tangible things that my children have learned, I mean, they're both um, really, really proficient with with hand tools. They're both um, extremely proficient in the wild. Um, they spend a lot of time out in the woods. They do a lot of uh, hunting and foraging. Um, either one of them could build a shelter. Um, they are proficient with most domestic tasks. Either one, if they, if they, uh, if there's a tear in their pants, either one of them can sew it up themselves. Um, you know, they're, they're proficient in most of the skills that you actually need in order to make your way in the world outside of the sort of moneyed economic system. Um, now, I realize that this starts to sound a little bit like we're just raising like a couple of survivalists, and that's the only goal, and that's not the case at all. Um, it, the other thing, so which brings me to my, my other point, which is that um, it's not so much that these are the skills that we think that our children have to have. These are skills that are an outgrowth of their interests and their environment, for sure. Um, it's much more that we feel really strongly that um, – they are learning a base level of resourcefulness um, and sort of self-reliance and ability um, to learn outside a structured system without that curriculum um, that we believe is going to serve them well no matter what it is they decide to learn, right? So if they decide, it's, it's possible, it's entirely possible that one of them or both of them are going to decide they want to go to college and they want to do something that you know, it looks a lot more like uh, what many people would consider a traditional uh, sort of, you know, first world career path. That may still happen. Um, and um, it's our belief that the resourcefulness that they're learning and the self-reliance that they're learning in the context of the skills they're learning um, are going to carry them through that path also. And confidence, you know, a yeah. tremendous, I, I really, what I see and what I feel um, and what I think is somewhat inherent to the, the, you know, our cultural assumptions that children can't learn unless they're put into this specific environment um, is a lack of confidence. And I think it's our own schooling as adults that has eroded that confidence, you know? Yeah. So if you're told that this is how you learn and this is how you have to learn, 
um, you start start to believe that that's the only way you learn. Um, so some people, you know, they use the term life learning to describe what we're doing. That's that's a pretty good term. I mean, you know, so it's like, you know, we forget, I think, that all of us are learning all the time. Um, and we forget, I think, as parents that our children, you know, are watching and learning from us all the time. Um, and I think one of the, way, the reasons, or maybe the primary reason we we have forgotten these things is because we've come to understand and we've come to associate learning with a very particular style of standardized instruction. I think this uh, segues nicely to this, another point you make in your book about how um, you talk about how we, we want children to be responsible, but uh, we don't give them responsibility so that they can be responsible. That's right. Kind of, kind of segues nicely. So, I mean, you you have done things with your children, at, with your sons at a young age, that mm-hmm. a lot of you know suburban American parents would be like be aghast. Oh my gosh, why why would you let your sons do that? I mean, talk about some of the things that your sons have done and and their ability to be resourceful and adapt and to take on those responsibilities. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I guess maybe the most obvious um, is that you know we got they both they each had a, a belt knife you know, before they were done with their fourth year, finished with their fourth year. Um, and, um, I should say that there, you know, for us, it's not like we, we've never really said that there are, there are these arbitrary ages at which they should be granted these responsibilities for us. It's much more, you know, and this is again, you know, <laughs> this is one of the benefits of having them at home and being able to observe, um, which is that, you know, it's really clear to us when they're ready for particular responsibilities. Uh, whereas it may not be so clear if, if to parents who don't are, don't have the luxury of spending as much time with their kids um, as we do. Um, so anyway, they yeah. They, so they started on knives super early, um, and that was really an outgrowth of the fact that uh, you know Penny and I always have a knife on our belt, and it's something that we use frequently. Um, and, you know, the other thing we taught them to do really early on was how to doctor their own cuts, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> like, you know, yes, they've cut themselves many, many times um, between the two of them, fortunately never seriously. Um, but, you know, the majority of the time that it happens, um, we hardly know about it because they'll just sort of come into the house and quietly go about getting themselves a bandage. Um, it actually doesn't happen that much anymore. But, you know, five, four or five years ago, it wasn't uncommon. Um and so, um, I th- you know, one thing that's really interesting is that if you do, if, if you sort of step back and do any reading about, um, you know, a, a more, from a more anthropological basis and look at how other, um, other groups of people, other cultures raise their children, it's very, very common um, in other cultures for children to have much greater exposure to what we here in the U.S. would be considered, would consider, you know, sort of heart wrenchingly dangerous. So, you know, it's like, it's like I, I do believe that we have, um, you know, we overreact uh, to the, the tangible risk in our children's lives. And we generally tend to, I think, to not react nearly strongly enough to those risks that aren't so tangible. You know, the risks of our children being sedentary, the risks of our children spending all of these incredible quantity of hours in front of digital devices without really thinking about that impact on not just their bodies, but their intellect, their psyches, their spirits. I mean, that's a conversation that just doesn't happen at all. And yet we worry, you know, we fret endlessly about the fact that they might cut themselves with a knife, right? Right. Um, or but, get abducted, you know, maybe, maybe, right, from their front yard or something like that. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, these are all things that, you know, they, they tragically do happen in a, a very, very, very infrequently. And unfortunately, you know, we have a media cycle um, and we have uh, an ad-based um, media that depends on, on ratings in order to, to make profits. And so these are the types of events that garner the most coverage. These are the type of events that we hear about. Um, and so uh, we fear things that, by and large, don't happen. Um, and in the process, um, we really, I think, do a lot of damage to our kids. So I, I believe... And, and and so as does my wife, you know, fortunately we're on the same page. This would be really tough if we weren't. Um, you know that it's really really critical to a child, uh, a human being's development, um, that they have an opportunity to take appropriate risk. Um, because I think that lack of appropriate risk uh, and during the earlier stages of a child's life um, leads to inappropriate risk taking later in life. I think you so mentioned this, like the, the, that opportunity to, as you, as you said, you know, to, to be responsible, to know and to feel trusted. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I know I was going to say. I think you mentioned studies where they said that if you, like when we make things safer, like we actually make things unsafe, right? Right. In a weird yeah. counterintuitive way. Yeah, I think it, 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 there have been studies where it's like as soon as you plant that that notion, you know, that you plant that seed that something is unsafe. Um, that, in fact, is when it becomes unsafe, you know, because that awareness sort of rises to the front um, and actually um, can, can actually cause people, you know, through um, just, I think, the fear of that to actually uh, attract that outcome in some way. I'd have to go back and look at that. It's been a long time. I've read, I've read those studies. It's been a long time since I've looked at what they actually found. But I, that was the upshot was that, that that sort of expectation of something being unsafe was actually in many ways, in many times, was what made it unsafe. Interesting. So I'm curious, um, have you and your wife maybe had some parental angst about, you know, are we doing the right thing? Do you have like, ever those conversations at night and you're laying together? Like, is this, is this the right thing? Are we actually doing the right thing for our sons? Or are you guys pretty like, yeah, no, this is it. This, we're, we're, there, we're doing the right thing for our sons. I think if we didn't have some doubts, we probably wouldn't be very good parents. To be totally honest, um, and uh, so yeah, I mean that's that's sort of a, a you know um, a short way of saying that uh, yes, we do have doubts from time to time. Um, I don't think we have um, we don't have like big picture doubts. Like we don't we don't think to ourselves, you know, um, oh my God, is did we make the right choice to not send them to school? That that is. We don't doubt that, but within the context of what we're doing and how we're doing it, you know, we do occasionally have doubts. I mean, those doubts are, the, are, are what led us to deciding that we did need to institute some sit-down math with the kids because we sort of realized that, you know, as much as we liked the idea that they would just pick this stuff up on their own, that it wasn't happening. Um, and so we realized that, you know, we needed to, we needed to ensure that a certain amount of that happened. Um, I don't worry about... Uh, and, you know, it sort of goes back to what we were talking about, like, you know, almost first, first thing, um, it, which is, you know, the sort of the plan and like, and like their future. And I do not for an instant worry about their ability to make their way in this world. Um, I am, I am very, very confident, um, that they'll figure out what it is, is right for them and they'll figure out a way to make it work. Um, and a lot of my confidence in that comes from seeing the ways in which they're able to sort of work through 
you know, their problems and challenges at this stage in their life. So um, that I'm not worried about. Um, but, but yeah, you know, specifically sometimes we think, you know, and, and I think, I think, again, it's like, I think any parent who doesn't on some level stop once in a while and question, you know, what it is they're doing. Um, I, I think actually you can really benefit from, from questioning y- y- the, the process, whether you're sending your kid to school or whether you're not or whatever your circumstances are. Um, so, um, you know, we question sometimes like, uh, have we, have we given them short shrift because we've decided to live, you know, in a lily white state where they simply just don't have that much exposure to other, other cultures and ethnicities. I mean, that's, that's a real sort of trade-off that, that, um, our kids live in. Um, and so there's, there's stuff like that, you know, um, and, and again, it goes back to like, well, what, you know, this brings me to another point <laughs> I really want to make, which is I hear a lot from people like, well, what about all the opportunities they're missing out on because they're not in school? Um, and and the only like sort of honest response to that is well you know of course they're missing out on opportunities just like every child in school is missing out on opportunities that my children have just like any child in any situation is missing out on opportunities we can't you know this is the world is just like this incredibly rich and diverse place it would be totally impossible for us to expose our children to every possible opportunity that's out there for them and i think in some ways um you know, the irony is that in some ways by trying to do that, uh, which I think a lot of parents do, we get caught up in this sort of like rat race of like trying to create as much opportunity for our kids as possible. Um, and in the process, you know, we schedule them to the hilt, to the point at which whatever that is they're, they're experiencing, whatever opportunity we're trying to expose them to, they're, they're really almost unable to absorb any any of it because they're so overscheduled and over, you know, overworked. I mean, I hear a lot, from parents whose kids are in a more conventional educational, on a more conventional educational path, you know, how, just how exhausted their kids are all the time. Um, and I think that's a really tragic outgrowth of what has become, I think, the contemporary expectation for our children's education, which is that it's going to turn them into productive economic units. I mean, that's the primary goal now of our public school system. Um, and I think that's a really tragic outcome. Well, Ben, this has been a great conversation. Uh, where can people learn more about uh, your books and as well as uh, your work? Um, if they want to read more uh, and learn more, they can uh, check out my website, which is benhewitt.net. Well, Ben Hewitt, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Brett. I appreciate it. My guest today was Ben Hewitt. He's the author of several books, but today we talked about Homegrown. You can find that on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about Ben's work at benhewitt.net. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you'd go give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher to help get the word out about the show and give us some feedback on how we can improve the show. As always, I appreciate the continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free. Shopify.com slash podcast free. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers, 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25.